great to be here today. I really mean that. I know that's what you're supposed to say when you come to preach. <laughs> I genuinely mean that. It is so comfortable in here with the AC. When I first got here, uh, Marty's like, hey, you know, you don't have to wear a suit. And this, I explained to him, first of all, you know, you want to respect the fact that you're being asked to come to a church to share God's word. But also, I was in a wedding yesterday, and I figure if you have to pay for a rental, and it's not due until this afternoon, <laughs> I'm going to get my, work, my use out of this. So, hence the vest. And I did take off my corsage. That would have been weird. But um, part of why I'm so honored to be here today is because this is such a... First of all, I know that this is the first PCA church in Tucson, and I love that. But for three years, I served at Little Dove Mountain Church, which is no longer a church, but was a wonderful time uh, to really get to know um, the polity of the church and uh, the order of worship. And so a lot of that was just an excellent throwback. So I'm, I'm really grateful to be here, like I said. I'm also honored to be um, part of your study through Psalm during the summer. And um, when Pastor Steve um, sent me the list of the different Psalms that had been uh, covered, I was very excited to see that Psalm 37 had not, uh, because it is one of my absolute favorites. Now, obviously, there are a lot of verses there. And so what I'm, we're only going to be covering verses 1 through 7. I would encourage you uh, to continue on in your personal study throughout the week, because there's nothing but pure gold throughout that. Um, I think this passage has spoken to me in my life for a number of reasons. One is that I tend to fret. Um, I tend to be anxious over a lot. Um, I have a friend in one of our men's small groups, um, and the louder the political debate gets, the more anxious he does. Uh, he's worked on some campaigns. Of course, we're in a campaign year. You add in all the different things that are happening around the world, plus just the day-to-day -day things that cause us to fret. And so passages like Psalm 37 are just water for our souls. Another reason I think that this um, really has always spoken to me is that I struggle in waiting on the Lord. I tend to be uh, kind of a spontaneous guy. With seven kids, you have to have some level of spontaneity or you're dead. But I'll take that in other areas. And the call to wait on the Lord that we're going to look at today uh, is a tremendous reminder. So again, Psalm 37 is a passage of comfort. Um, it's a reminder that the only cure for the times that we find ourselves tied up and bogged down in anxiety, fear of evil, the only cure in that is full submission to God. So it's not a magic trick. I don't need to reveal things little by little. The overarching theme of this is submission to God. And I found five ways in these passages, um, and there are many more, but that's what we're going to talk about are five different ways. What makes submission so difficult is our desire to control everything. Uh, we want to control, we want what others have. Uh, we want to trust in our own abilities. We want to delight in the things that the world offers us. We want to be captains of our own ship. And we want what we want, when we want it, and how we want it. Psalm 37, 1-7 goes against the very grain of our nature. So let's, let's look at that, and then we're going to pray for the Lord to illuminate this. Um, fret not yourself because of evildoers be not envious of wrongdoers for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb trust in the Lord and do good dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart commit your way to the Lord trust in him and he will act 
He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Lord, thank you for uh, your word and your people gathered here and your people gathered all over the city and all over the world. Father, we thank you for your church, your universal church. I pray, Father, that you would show us what it is you would have us to see in this passage, that nothing that I say or do would become a distraction or get in the way of that, Lord, but that what we would walk away with and apply to our lives would be your true word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Scripture, again, shows us our, our nature, our weak, selfish, sinful nature, and our inability to do any good whatsoever without the Holy Spirit. The Bible also shows us the nature of God, his loving, just, consistent, beautiful nature. So whatever passage comes, or I'm sorry, whatever conviction comes from this passage should quickly lead for us to find the assurance that in changing our way to be more like Christ, to be more like our Heavenly Father, is in fact painful at times, but a wonderful part of our sanctification as we become more like him. So again, as we break into this passage, I shouldn't say break in, as we get into it, it's open, it's free for everybody, but as we get into this passage, the first thing that we notice is the word envy. We're we're told not to envy evildoers, and as we look at envy, it's kind of an interesting thing, because we tend to think of envying good things, but this is saying don't envy evildoers. You think, well, why would I ever envy an evildoer? I only envy good people. And we're told not to fret because of what wrongdoers do. Well, there, there is, while there's no good envy, there's a positive connotation when we look at somebody who is uh, godly or successful and we think, you know what? I would like to be where they are. Understanding that Christ is, is where my eyes are fixed, but there are some mile markers along the way. And I want to do things um, to be more faithful. Like, for instance, next week when Pastor Sherrard is here, that's a man who knows his Bible. And when I hear him preach and I hear how much he loves the Lord, I think, I would, yeah, ultimately I want to be like Jesus, but I got a ways to go before I get to Stu Sherrard. I want to, I'm, I'm kind of envious of that, you know? But then there's also the, the bad envy, which of course is the envy that we know. And that is when we see something or someone and there is a, a tinge in us and it's a desire that not only do we want what they have, but we're angry that they have it. We're angry that we don't have it. And so in a sentence, envy is that mingling desire for something with the resentment that the other person has it. Things aren't going well for you, um, but things are going well for them. And it just kind of gnaws at you, and it sits there, and it bothers you. And you don't want to admit it, but it does. So this is a pretty well-known concept for life, but what's not known for me, at least when I first started studying into this, was this idea of being jealous of, of wrongdoers. I thought about, you know, your, na- your neighbor brags that, you know, he's cheating on his taxes, he's doing some other shady financial things, and you go to his house, and it's amazing, and he's got these two fantastic luxury cars, Everything you can imagine, it's the furniture, the whole nine, it's, it's wonderful. He's taking these vacations to Hawaii. And then you look at your own life and you think, okay, well, 
a lot of my furniture would probably be rejected by the Goodwill. <laughs> the, the vacation I was able to swing was a day or two up in Phoenix. This isn't fair, Lord. I, I tithe. I don't cheat on my taxes. Why is this happening to me, and, and why is he getting away with what he's getting away with? Or you're single, and you think, you know what? I'm, I'm going to wait on the Lord. I'm going to wait till marriage. If you're, if you're a young lady, I'm going to wait for the man that God has for me. And meanwhile, you've got a friend who has no such convictions and is seemingly very popular and seemingly very happy and not pure and not faithful in the way that she conducts her relationships. You think, how is this fair, Lord? Why am I sitting here waiting on you, being faithful, and she's having the time of her life? Sometimes it feels like it doesn't pay to be good. And that's what this passage is understanding, that we feel that way. When evil prospers and the good suffer, you can be tempted to doubt God, especially if, you're, if you feel you're the good guy. Now, we know that there's none good, but sometimes we feel like, well, I'm, maybe I'm not as bad as that guy, or, or I'm, I'm taking steps past that. And if, if you're not careful to cultivate the right perspective, you can be tempted to say, well, just forget it. I'm, I'm going to join the evildoers. I used to take a hard line on this. I'm, you know what? It's not worth it. And David's been there. You know, King David wrote this. He was older when he wrote this, this psalm. Um, although he'd been anointed king as a teenager, and you think, oh man, things are great. Folklore, he killed the giant. Right after that, Saul, who did not fear God, is constantly attempting to kill him. There have been so many times when David's out hiding in the caves, we had the opportunity to kill Saul and does not kill the king of Israel. He is doing good. He is taking the ultimate high road, if you will. Four times he could have killed him, doesn't. Goes back to his cave. Meanwhile, Saul wakes up and goes back to the luxury of his palace. And David's thinking, oh my word, I'm doing the right thing, and I'm a cave dweller, and look at Saul. So I promise you David has been there in this. And David is a man after God's own heart, but he had his own moral failings, as we know. And like I said, when David was an old man, he wrote Psalm 37 to share his insights on this problem. And the psalm reflects the wisdom that he's gleaned over years of walking with God. That's one of the neat things about psalm and Proverbs. There's many. It's almost like, a, like an advanced course. You've got this wisdom here on the page. And yes, life brings you wisdom and trial and error. But what a blessing it is to just have God's wisdom here for us today. So uh, a man uh, is a pastor actually named Stephen Cole. Once summarized these first verses by saying, When the bad guys win, submit to God. Be content in him and do rightly, trusting the Lord to judge righteously. Now, I know that you all are probably pretty aware that Pastor Steve's a pretty big baseball fan, giant Red Sox fan. I mean, to be honest with you, he and I have only seen each other at Presbytery a number of times, but the way we talk online is like we're absolute best friends because we've got this bond. And when I think of this passage, and again, I hope for some of you you're not like, oh gosh, this guy's just going to give a baseball analogy, but I am. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm going to do. When I think about my favorite times as a Cleveland Indians fan, the mid-90s, teams were so good. And then a little bit later, Pastor Steve's Red Sox were really good. And guess what happens? All of a sudden, those amazing home run numbers and the phenomenal pitchers, and both the Indians and Red Sox are to blame in this, turns out a lot of guys were doing steroids. And over time, it became more and more evident that there were a lot of players doing steroids. And when you look back on it, I was a kid, I didn't really think about it, but when you look at it, you had good hitters becoming Hall of Fame power hitters. 
you had guys throwing harder at 35 than they were at 25. And all of a sudden, you've got guys being banned. You've got guys not able to make it into the Hall of Fame. All this stuff falls out. And then they started interviewing a lot of the players who did not do steroids, guys who were clean. And the frustration that they had over the fact that these men, yes, it's true now, uh, we see that a lot of them are facing the consequences, but a lot of them didn't. They got paid very well. They were, they had a lot of fame. There were, all the things that baseball players wanted, they were getting, and when it came out that they were getting it the wrong way, a lot of players shared how frustrated they were in that. And one of the players, uh, Ken Griffey Jr., who's a, a, an amazing baseball player, was rather, his refusal to cheat was one that always I, I always marveled at. Because here you had a guy who was bigger than the game. He was amazing. And toward the end of his career, he was injured over and over and over and over again. And he just never was the man. When he got traded to another team, the Reds, he was never the guy he was in Seattle. And one of the benefits from steroids is it helps you heal better. It helps you heal faster or heal sometimes when you wouldn't have healed at all. So if ever there was a time to rationalize and say, I'm going to do what the wrongdoers are doing. That time would have been when Ken Griffey Jr. was playing. And it's interesting to me because one of the words that was, or I guess it was the Seattle Post, wrote an article around the time that Ken Griffey finally made it into the Hall of Fame, which, of course, is the ultimate goal for any baseball player. But that article said, for all the tape measure home runs, the diving catches, the way he genuinely seemed to love baseball, the best part of Ken Griffey Jr. was that he never cheated. And again, I guarantee you, he was tempted to take steroids. They were all over the different clubhouses in Major League Baseball, and he had a lot to lose. He was up here, and then he saw people surpass him, and he never cheated. So we're given a commandment to not fret over this. To not be envious in that first verse, even when uh, it's really easy to want what those others have. But here in, in verse 2, we see the why. And this was actually touched on in our worship folder this morning, too, with an excellent reading. Verse 2 is, For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. I think the, see where I put it. I think the passage today in our exaltation of God was, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but like chaff that the wind drives away. Evil men and women may succeed at first glance. They might gain power, and they might gain position. And it might seem like they're laughing at you as they're getting away with it. But we serve a just God a sovereign and omnipotent God who knows how everything turns out. And so in those deepest moments where you are the most frustrated, and the last thing you want to hear is that you just continue, stay the course and stay the course. Take comfort in the fact that God sees the whole of time and is assuring us that everyone will stand before the Lord for, for the actions they take and the compromises they make. And it's true that wrongdoers do in fact thrive. And this verse comforts us because it tells us, it uses a metaphor here and it says that they thrive, but they thrive like grass or like some sort of plant. 
And if you realize the fact that obviously um, when the Lord spoke this to David's heart and he wrote it down in, in prayer back to God, this is happening in, in the Middle East. And one of the fascinating things, I have a friend who's from, from Qatar. He used to say Qatar, but I guess it's Qatar. And he, we were talking about um, just kind of the, the weather there. Because, you know, we complain about how hot it is here. But man, some of those storms and that wind, you can have a, a beautiful looking garden on Monday and it is a wilted, withered, almost completely gone mess by Wednesday because the heat of these winds come and it knocks it down. The judgment winds come. And that's what this passage is saying is, right, for a time, it looks like they're getting it done. But the, but the fact is, is that the time here on earth is so short and it is so passing that it is not worth putting all your chips here in this life. And that when the time comes for us to stand before the Lord, we recognize that we would much rather be on his side than completely putting him out of mind like so many people around us do. So in the face of envy over the wicked, we have to repent of it. That's the first thing. We have to submit to God, and we have to be comforted in the fact that we serve a just God who is bigger than any problem that we've ever had or any perceived problem or any problem that we might have. God's sovereignty is indisputable, and it's also a profound comfort. So that is the, the first uh, point, is the fact that we're not to fret, we're not to be envious. The second one is that we're to trust in the Lord. I love how this verse builds on itself. Uh, we're able to turn envy into submission, but the only way we're able to do that is if we, in fact, trust in the Lord. So verse 3 tells us, trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. That's the second point. We must trust the Lord, especially when it seems like there are so many out here who would love to see us fail, who would love to see uh, Christ's church silenced, done away with. I always find it funny, though, when we have to state the reminder that we need to trust the Lord, because what Christian is going to say, you know what? That's a real, I hadn't thought of that. I will trust the Lord. But it's so against our nature, and we fall back so often into not trusting the Lord. It's like when, when you learn something, whether uh, there's a bad habit and you have an instructor, whether you're, you dance or you play basketball or whatever, you, ha you know what the right thing to do is. But in the, in the middle of crunch time, when you are looking at yourself, when you are the most afraid, you're going to revert back to what feels the most comfortable. And to us, as fallen creatures... It is not comfortable. It is not our first step to trust in the Lord. So even still, we sit and we weigh our options. I can, I can trust the Lord. I can trust myself. And we would never put him in those terms, but our actions show that that's how our mind goes. And faith is difficult, but it is beautiful. Faith is where the promises of God and the works of God are made real to his people. And so this passage isn't going to make a whole lot of sense to those who are not his people, but to us, it speaks to our heart. And that's why I believe that it fits um, so well here. God promises us that the evildoers will wither like grass, but that our, rea our reward in Christ is going to be a reality. And we need not to trust anything but God himself, but my word, it is so difficult to do that. And of course, and again, we're, we're David found that this was incredibly difficult. So we break this down further, and we're not just called to trust God and remain passive in every other area of our lives. It's not a just, okay, I'm just going to trust God. Like, that's my worry stone. I trust God, and I'm just going to sit here. Because all of a sudden, we have some actions that are attached to this. 
We are to do good. We're to dwell in the land, and we're to befriend faithfulness. So instead of giving into self-pity and hatred, which is super easy to do, the wise man, the wise woman of God, develops a trust in the Lord. Trusting in the Lord means faith, especially in the more difficult aspects of life. But submission to God means taking on his priorities, right? Just like a son looks at his father and says, my dad does this, I do this. We know what is a priority to the Lord. Micah 6.8 tells us what is a priority to the Lord. We're not just able to sit back. We are to do good, but we're to do good for God's glory. And we have to recognize, like I said earlier, we're not capable of good outside of that. You know, the passage is about don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. If you're doing good so others will see you, guess what? It's not good. Your, your reward in heaven has now just been completely wiped because your reward was a pat on the back from some other fallen human who probably isn't that impressed anyway. Who probably themselves are a little envious that you've got a cool story about the time that you paid for the groceries of the lady behind you. See, when we do good, it is to be a sacrifice to God. It is to be with pure motives. It, he increases and we decrease, even though he is using us as a tool for whatever reason. So that's it. The first one is do good. The other one is to dwell in the land. And this is a hard one. Like my friend that I talked about, he's like, he's on a complete media fast. He, he doesn't want to go online. He doesn't want to read articles. And for him, I think that's healthy. For us, we are called to live in the world. There's a reason that we have not just been taken to heaven. And it is the fact that the Lord is doing work. He is building his kingdom. That was the whole ministry of Christ pointing to the coming, coming kingdom. And now, during our sanctification, as we're being made more and more like Christ, we're called to love others, to share Christ with them. So we can't just, we can't just bury our head in the sand, as phenomenal as that would probably be at times. But then submission to God means understanding that faithfulness is something that we should befriend, that we should strive for disciplines, not for discipline's sake, so that we can show on a list, I did this, I, I read my Bible, I prayed, I went to two Bible studies, boom, boom. It's not about a list. In fact, when you're a, when you're a friend to someone, you're not going to carry a list of the good things and the bad things they do and constantly compare. You're going you're gonna to love that friend. You're going to stand with that friend. Well, with faithfulness, it is, in this metaphor, it's the same thing. We are to say, everything I can do to be faithful, I want to do. Not so I can say it, but because I love God, because I submit to him, because there's enough evil swirling around that all I have is him. So several years ago, I saw a movie, um, and it was set in 1962 at the beginning. It's one of those ones that jumps. And in it, there's a, a scientist, really kind of eccentric guy, and um, he's, he is not on the media fast. He knows what's going on. And he can tell that there's something, something terrifying with the nukes and Russia and Cuba and all this whole thing. So he builds this pretty impressive bomb shelter underneath their home. He has one son. And right at the time that the Cuban Missile Crisis strikes, he figures it's only going to get worse from here. So we're going in there. And he goes into this uh, bomb shelter with his son and, and, uh, in 1962. And they don't come out until 1999. And I don't remember why, but that's when they came out. And now you've got this kid who's been in a bomb shelter since 1962, walking around. Hilarity ensues, as you can imagine, okay? One, one of the many great Brendan Fraser movies out there. So, um, But it's interesting because with all that's happening in our world, with the persecution, with 
the rise of ISIS with so many social issues that are going on, the, the powerlessness that we feel uh, can be very discouraging. But what this passage is saying is embrace that powerlessness because guess what? We are powerless. And our one, the one from whom we draw all of our strength, is completely powerful. And so we don't have the luxury of hiding from it. If anything, it should chase us into the arms of God. So as we go through the next couple points, we don't have too much longer, think not of I'm going to do more and try harder and I'm going to stretch, but realize that the horrible hot winds of the sin around us, uh, the, 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 the terror that the psalmist was experiencing, these are things that push us toward God. We should want him. He is that drink of water. He is not uh, a list of rules that we break our backs trying to achieve for his pleasure. He loves us, but he is calling us to what is best for us. So that was our second point, is that with all that's going on around us, we are to trust in the Lord. Verse 4 tells us to delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, before you start thinking that this is some kind of quid pro quo or prosperity gospel, that I'm going to go on. I'm not. I'm not. A guy in a suit and a vest would never steer you wrong. But the promise in this verse is not the second part of you'll get the desires of your heart. It's the first part, that if you delight yourself in the Lord. And here's what I mean by that. See, some people might read this passage as, if you delight yourself in the Lord, then he will give you the lesser things of the world that you still really, really want. Like, oh, okay, perfect. I'll do this. You give me that. Sounds great. I get, I get the sea do. But what this is actually saying is, and, and John Piper, of course, um, who I'm going to be honest, has talked about a little bit here because he kind of has done a good job of explaining desiring God and, and, and Christian hedonism and all that. You've probably heard him say, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Well, when you and I truly delight in the Lord, our desires change. Our appetites change. Just like the things that you thought were awesome when you were little, you know, and you might still like sugary cereal and toys and cartoons, and that's fine. But for most people, that's what we liked when we were little, and now our desires change. And we want, whereas before we just wanted to have fun, now we want security and we want respect, all these different things. Well, that's, that's what this is talking about. The more we desire the Lord, the more he changes our desires. And it's not about the, the, the lesser earthly stuff that we want. What this is actually saying is that when you delight in the Lord, you'll get your desires, the, heart, the desires of your heart. And those desires are the Lord himself. He becomes your delight, not your gateway to lesser treasures. So continuing on with Piper, who again is, has written a lot on the subject, he wrote a book called Hunger for God. And in it he says, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestations of the glory of God, it's not because you've drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because you've nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things, and there's no room for the great. Saul's a perfect example. He has all that the world can offer. Remember, he is this big, strong, broad-shouldered, good-looking guy, and Israel's like, we want him as a king. And God's like, are you sure? And like, yeah, this is what we want. This is what we want. And he has had opulence, and he is powerful, and he's a warrior, and he has filled up on that. And so many times I've been guilty of snacking and snacking and snacking before the meal. And when I sit down in front of the meal, it doesn't even appeal to me. It's just like a gnawing at my soul because I just allowed the world to permeate every aspect of me. We must delight in the Lord. And when we do, our desires change. 
And the only way that we change is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the only way that that happens is when we submit ourselves to God. Rather than focusing on the things of the world, focus on the Lord. And in gaining the Lord, you gain everything else you will ever need. The passage, the second part of that verse says, he will give you the desires of your heart. Your heart has changed. If you're delighting yourself in the Lord and your desires line with his desires, then we truly are fulfilling what Matthew 6.33 says, which is almost a New Testament parallel to this. and says, seek first God's kingdom and righteousness and all these things, your needs, will be added unto you. I added your needs. I don't want to be a blasphemer. When you're kingdom-minded, it's easier for us to avoid the anxiety and the fear that comes with being earthly-minded. Again, in his book, Desiring God, this will be the last Piper quote, I promise, which is kind of who I'm into right now, right? Um, He says, God is happy because he delights in himself. God will be unjust if he valued anything more than what is supremely valuable. He is supremely valuable. If he did not take infinite delight in his own glory, he would be unrighteous because it is right to take delight in a person in proportion to the excellence of his glory. The scriptures are saturated with texts showing how God unwaveringly acts out of love for his own glory. For my sake, this is Isaiah 48, 11, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. This is head-exploding type stuff because as humans, if I were to say the same thing about, I'm happiest when I make myself happy. I'm happiest in Steve Johnson. And what Steve Johnson does, you'd be like, this guy is a jerk. And Cavalero can never go on vacation again. Because if jerks like this are going to come in, we have a problem. And that's what our minds say. But when we think about God, the fact that God is most delighted in himself, it makes perfect sense within that line of reasoning. Because if God were to take glory in something other than himself, then that is God saying that there is something outside of himself, greater than himself, more glorious than himself. And as we are being discipled, and all that is is saying, this is what God says, go do it. God is being incredibly consistent. So anyway, that's another sermon, but I love that point. And what a concept that is, that we're delight in God, not just because the Bible says so, or because we, we're told that we ought to, but because he is the ultimate thing in which we are to delight in. So in order to, uh, to avoid fearing the doom of evil or envy, or, or uh, I'm sorry, or people who do evil, that we find ourselves kind of envying because it seems like they've got a cheat to life, we're to trust the Lord. And we're to trust the Lord, and we can only do that when we delight in him and when we delight in his ways. So point number three in hindsight was just delight in the Lord. My question to you would be, do you delight in the Lord? If not, why not? Meditate on that. I'm guessing most of you have children. I see little kids in the back. I've got little kids. A lot of you probably have grown kids. Um, Isn't it interesting to watch a, a really small child transition from this tiny baby state of total dependence into uh, a state of more independence. You know, it's, it's a healthy thing that we do, right, as parents. And that is to do for our children when they can't and then help them do for themselves. I cannot wait for the day in which everybody can just get themselves dressed and get in their car. That's why I brought one son. I left six at home. I'm like, I'm fr- I gotta be there. I just have to. 
that day is going to be wonderful. And that independence is a healthy, normal thing. But the problem is, a lot of times as humans, and especially humans in the United States, we really pride ourselves on our independence. I don't need anything. I don't need anyone. And if we continue on in that line of thinking that it is all about independence and dependence, what we realize is, is we're actually taking that self-reliance and the resourcefulness and allowing it to turn into pride. And that pride does become a stronghold of self-reliance, but we have to be careful because self-reliance shuts out God. I mean, right now I'm thinking of my two-year-old Mary, who I love so much. She, she is not interested in my help. She's not interested in any of your help. She's going to do it. And as a result, she spills on herself and she falls and she gets hurt and all these different things. And how much is that the way our Heavenly Father must see the fact that we got this, Lord. We can take care of it. And then it's in the hindsight that we come to him and we just beg for his mercy. And we pray that he'll help us. So we know from the Bible that shutting out God leads to doom. So we want to avoid that. And so operating on that truth, verses uh, 5 and 6 give us more imperatives and also more commands. And they say, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. This is about as straightforward as you could ever want a passage to be. Uh, it's, it's ripe with more promises, and once again, it gives us steps for action. Don't head off in your own direction. Don't wait until you're lost or overwhelmed to come to God, is what this passage is saying. He's saying, start with God. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust him, and what will he do? He'll act. We don't serve a, pass, a passive or distant or disinterested God. We serve a loving, relational God who pledges to act in accordance with his will, but he'll act. Talk about exciting. That's one of the most wonderful things possible is to think that we have access. It's crazy that sinners have access to God anyway, except for through what Jesus has done. But when we reach out to God, you're reaching out to the most powerful being in the universe. Omnipotent, omnipresent. Think about when you're in a pinch. You call people that you're close to, right? As, as close as any humans can be to each other. And you think, well, this friend can help me. He knows cars or she can help me. She understands how to sew a dress last minute. We reach out to those who we think can help us. And we do it sometimes readily. Okay, look, I know I've asked you for favors before, but can you help me with this? But yet we fail to do that with the Lord. And what this passage is telling us to do is to start there, to ask God. It's hard to imagine a darker time in our country's history than the Civil War. And I can't even imagine... I mean, I struggle to make decisions over like a handful of ministries at a church in Tucson, right? Or, or what to eat for dinner. I can't imagine what it would be to have a, a nation at war. I think the, at that time there was 31 million people making decisions for 31 million people in the United States. Decisions that result in bloodshed, people dying, agony. When I hear Abraham Lincoln, and again, anybody that's had multiple biographers, it's going to go back and forth about just what was his faith and this and that. I will tell you, though, that he, nevertheless, he had a proper understanding of our need and our reliance on God, and it, both in the personal and in the collective. And he says, it's the duty of nations as well as men uh, to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God and to confess their, or confess their sins in transgressions, in humble sorrow, yet with, assure, with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon 
and to recognize the sublime truth announced in Holy Scripture and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. And you've heard it said tons of times, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission, right? That's the sneaky guy's um, motto. I mean, it used to be mine. It's not mine now. It's when I was a kid, right? I was in high school. And it is easier to run out ahead of God than it is to stay back and rely on him. But it is also a lot more dangerous, and it will lead to certain failure. So we're standing in a place right now where wherever you've come from, the Lord has this truth in front of you, and it can shape decisions you will make next week. I would much rather be here right now with you, with us looking at this truth, than ignoring it, and in a week later be like, oh my goodness, we totally read about this, and what did I do? I ran off half-cocked again, which again, pray for me, that's something I do too often. Are you the type of person who charges off, who gets into tough spots, and then decides to ask God for help or for forgiveness? Are your responses to a world that can be hostile to us. Are they loving? Do they benefit the world? Or are they angry? Are you acting in the flesh or are you acting in the spirit? See, even the way we engage this hostile world, we must go to God first. There have been times I've said things to non-believing family members over dumb things, political things on Facebook, and I regret those. I think, why? Because I want to be right. See, if I'd gone to the Lord first on how to answer that, he would have shown me, hey, buddy, there by the grace of me, of God, go you. You have eyes to see only because I've opened your eyes. Be loving to your uncle. Don't be a jerk back to him. But see, these are the types of things that we need to bring before the Lord first. And many of us struggle with this idea of seeking God before we seek other solutions. But our passage today is clear. We are to commit our way to the Lord. Why? Because he will act. We are to commit to him because he knows all and he sees all and he can do all on our behalf and he protects us and he will avenge us. So this is the last point, I promise you. I'm not going to say this is the last point and then add a second one. This is the fifth point. And like I said, the overarching, if we recall, is God's sovereignty. The final verse in our time today is verse 7. And verse 7 contains one of the richest reminders in scripture and yet also outlines one of the most difficult things that we can do in our worlds of personal control. That, path, that verse says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Again, it says, Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. The word still here, I had to look it up in Hebrew, means rapa. And what that means is to slacken or to let down or to cease. Now think about that in the context of our control and how we want our hands all over everything. It is saying slacken or let down or cease. In some instances, the word also carries the idea of to drop or to be weak or to faint. God is saying, stop. As we face persecution and our injustice, it's easy for us to try and take matters into our own hands. I'm sure there were times David wanted to do that. But what is so fantastic about this verse is that God shows us that he absolutely knows us. He knows our appetite in our nature for control. He knows that we want to control everything, even persecution, right? We're going to stop it. We're going to be the ones that stand up here. And there is a time that's called for that, but it must be with the Lord's leading, not because of our pride. We even battle God over the final say. 
over how we are to respond. But what the, what the psalmist is saying here is perfect. He's saying, drop your little sword. Put down your tiny shield. Fall down. Surrender. But you're not surrendering to an enemy who would want to see you hurt or killed. You're surrendering to your creator, to the maker, to the one who has your best interests in mind. Now that we're in the proper posture of just stopping and falling down, we're called to wait in the presence of the Lord. And as verse 7 ties us back around to verse 1, we're reminded not to fret over what evil men and women do, even if it appears that they're getting away with it. Come, Lord Jesus, right? We wanted to stop now, and you could have 50 sermons on waiting for the Lord. We obviously don't have time for that. But waiting on the Lord is so difficult, but yet so, so important as we understand submission to God. God, it's your way, and it is your timetable. You tell me what I need to do, and I will do it. Lord, just give me the strength, because I'm a fallen human, and I'm going to be chomping at the bit. But I will wait on you. God is good. His ways are good. His justice is the reality for everyone, regardless of their ability to see it. So the psalmist, again, gave us five points to remember as we leave here today. And these are commandments as well as comforts. The first one was, do not envy evildoers. Even if wrongdoers succeed, they only do so for the lifespan of grass and a Middle Eastern garden. Which if you say that to somebody without any kind of context, they'll look at you weird, but you know what I mean. They will quickly, and it doesn't last. The second one is trust in the Lord. Submission is only possible when we trust God fully in all the aspects of our lives. You have to trust someone in order to submit. And remember those three little subpoints: the action items of trust, we do good, we dwell in the land, and we befriend faithfulness. The third point was delight in the Lord. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. And there is nothing more worthy of our delight than the Alpha and the Omega. The fourth one was commit your way to the Lord. And we must do this before we act, not in hindsight. And then the final one was to wait on the Lord. Give up your illusions of control and fall down and wait on the Lord because he is all-knowing and his ways are perfect. Life is hard and it seems like evil is all around us and there's no guarantee that we're going to be out exempt from persecution. But we can enjoy the fact that God is in control, that he has supplied us even when we are persecuted because we know the creator. We can delight ourselves in the abundant peace even when the bad guys seem to be winning. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to be here um, with uh, my brothers and sisters to share your word. I pray, Lord, that this would just whet our appetites, that this uh, little sermon would um, and, and not satisfy us, Lord, because we should never be satisfied on your word. I thank you in advance, Lord, for the things that you will do in our lives as we strive to uh, apply this. Uh, again, we, we pray for those who are out traveling. I pray for uh, Desert Springs Church, Lord, and the other churches, that we might live this, that we might trust you, that we might engage the world lovingly. In Jesus' name, amen.